This episode contains discussions about drug addiction, opioid abuse, medical malpractice, suicidal ideations, suicide, and overdose deaths. If you're experiencing addiction and need help, contact 1-800-662-4357 in the United States or 1-833-553-6983 if you are in Canada. Listener discretion is strongly advised. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Oh, right. For Christ's sake, why? Hey! Why? Why? Because we fucking can! We don't submit to terror. I commit evil to destroy the greater evil. We make the terror. Welcome to the World Domination Committee, a monthly podcast where we discuss villains from media and history. What makes a good villain? and what makes a bad villain better. I'm your host, X Zala, and because of today's villain, I carry Narcan in my first aid kit. And I'm your other host, Trinzala, your heroin addiction, trigger finger itching, here to introduce you to this murder business. Alright, so before we dive into today's topic, we have some feedback to address. Yee. So for episode 11, Riches in Plain View, we had a few complaints about the length of the episode. Uh, for context, it was three hours Y'all and two weak. minutes. Y'all are yes, weak. You Get obviously haven't listened to long form seven plus hour video essays. Get on my level, you? guys. Now, I would say think of that episode kind of as a background audio essay to sleep to or to help when you're bored at work, facing existential mundanity, and just be glad you weren't the one editing because we cut down 12 hours of raw audio into that three-hour episode. So, you're welcome. You're welcome, truck drivers. Getting back into actual feedback. (laughs) Legitimate feedback. (laughs) Nav felt that HW uh, was adopted simply for the optics, and I could totally see that. they suggested that Daniel's mind was like so warped with ambition that HW was really for keeping the legacy together, not for legitimate interest in like the growth of a child. Yeah, no family dependence, no actual affection. Yeah, and I, this is actually uh, really well illustrated by uh, Nav um, and how this is kind of reinforced by like Daniel never having learned like ASL to actually communicate with Daniel speak his language yeah we question why he didn't but if you take it from the lens that daniel never truly cared about hw it makes perfect sense it's fucked up but it makes perfect sense yeah yeah it's all like oh that's inconvenient to learn that nah yeah just like it was inconvenient and daniel sent him off when he was becoming a trouble child right right we also had some questions what does hw stand for which i was wondering as well is it tech Bro billionaire's top name of the year? Is it Elon Musk's new child? Is it a reference Was to- that the, like, what, the 20th? <laughs> his, his child colony. His Mars <laughs> project. Uh, is it short for human worker, perhaps? I've also heard pitched. The world may never know, but you can read some fun conspiracies on a very long Reddit thread. We will leave the link in the doobly-doo. Also... This is kind of interesting, but a disappointment for all my conspiracy theorists out there. Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, confirms that Paul and Eli are different. Another actor was supposed to play Paul, but was apparently 
fired because he just didn't work well with the crew. And so at the last minute, uh, he just basically made Paul and Eli identical twins that were never in the same room at the same time. Mm. I think the author should die. Not, <laughs> not in the metaphorical sense, death of an author. Not uh, uh, this is not. Hey, 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 hey! Twitter mob, stop. It was also mentioned that both Daniel and Eli were psychopaths and false prophets in their own respect. One of God, of course, Eli being the false prophet trying to proliferate his church around town and get all that cash money, and one of technology industry. Obviously, Daniel with the oil boom. We also compared them to being the yin and yang of each other, but in effect, the yang actually destroys the yin in the end. It's also suggested by now that Daniel's actual event horizon is his isolation from other people. Now, I kind of disagree with that, but I could see how you can come to this conclusion if you come from the viewpoint that HW is simply for optics. Mm-hmm. That, that that makes to- uh, total sense in that event horizon. I think with my interpretation, uh, I give a little bit more humanity to Daniel. Maybe he doesn't deserve that, but I give a little bit more humanity that he does. He does have HW for some optics, but also he does have some true feelings there. Um, at least I believe so because of like the tears that Daniel cried. And so I still think that his true event horizon would be the disownment of HW. But if you look at it solely from the lens of he's never loved HW, he's only there for optics, then Daniel actually like isolating would be his event horizon does make sense. Absolutely. All right. That is the feedback that we currently have. Feedback adjourned. Should we get into today's villain? Let's do it. Let's get it. So we discovered today's villain as a listener recommendation from someone named Andre after House of Usher came out in October. And you'll understand why very shortly. There are a lot of ties between today's villain and House of Usher that we'll get into. We are covering the Sackler family and their notorious business, Purdue Pharma. (laughs) Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family have faced countless lawsuits due to their overprescription of of addictive drugs like OxyContin, claiming they were non-addictive painkillers. Purdue Pharma, not to be confused with the ever so crazily named Purdue Pharmaceuticals, (laughs) Not confusing at all, guys. Uh, totally confusing on purpose. Um, Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers were also criticized for contributing to the U.S. opioid epidemic, um, like, pretty heavily. I they, mean, they basically started that shit. Yes, they started, uh, they innovated the movement and set up the circumstances for a perfect storm to take place. Exactly. Um, they've been described as the most evil family in America and the worst drug dealers in history. Or, I guess, if you consider it in a different light, maybe the best drug dealers in the history. Fair point, yeah. You can actually see how much the opioid crisis has affected the United States, as the United States is a big exporter of culture, and one culture that it exports pretty heavily is music, and with hip-hop being so prevalent, um, a, there's a few hip-hop songs that actually explore these types of concepts, as well as, you know, movies like train spotting and that sort of thing but uh, a few songs i would kind of note to actually that like really hit the nail on the head pretty fast is songs like prescription slash oxymoron by schoolboy q 
or Serpents by Greaves. Mm. Um, they kind of, these kind of songs perfectly describe a situation from both the supplier side, the user side, and all the family members affected. And you can just feel how deeply the emotion is felt inside the lyrics of the songs. Right. And it's interesting because they can capture it in such like a short three to five minute length covering those perspectives and how greatly everyone is affected by the opioid epidemic. Absolutely. Today's sources come from Crime of the Century, the HBO documentary, The Family That Built an Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe, and You Murdered My Daughter, Relatives of Oxycontin Victims Confront the Sacklers by Jan Hoffman. So this is going to be a little bit different. We are covering people, but also a company in the present day as our victim, as our villain. So it's going to be a little bit of an unconventional episode, starting with the threshold. Oh yeah, it's going to be a super interesting thing as there's definitely some main characters driving it like the Sackler family or like the opioid epidemic like the Sackler family. But really it's almost an idea and like corruption at the base of it. Yeah, and there's a lot of history involved before the Sacklers even came into play. Um I think with the threshold and trauma, it's kind of hard because you're talking about an entire society. Right. Um, and there's nothing, it's not as easy to point to a specific event such as, um, like the nuclear bomb falling in Japan. Like you, you can easily point to Japanese culture and be like, that was a defining moment of trauma for the country. Yes. Um, or the rape of Nanking for China. Like mm-hmm. it's a definitive, you know, moment that causes trauma. Um, so I think for the United States, the point of trauma was actually the need for human capital, uh, during the Cold War, as there was immense pressure, uh, for industrialization and the United States had a relatively smaller popular, uh, population compared to its adversaries. Yeah, compared to Russia, less people to build your weaponry. So what are you going to do? Exactly. And so I think they kind of followed, uh, this kind of sets up a situation where, Drugs can be used to exploit the workers for the people, I guess, in power. I think this is easily seen by Nazi Germany and their use of methamphetamines uh, to that they provided to soldiers in order to get them to have quick victories and become basically super soldiers. Stay high and keep going. Stay high, keep going. You don't need sleep. You know, you know, you don't need anything. Don't feel pain. Keep going. So how does this tie back? To the the U.S. with the uh, Cold War. So this ties back to the United States with the Cold War, as it would require a lot of work, such as uh, with industrialization comes coal mining, mm-hmm. um, construction working, oil rigs, very dangerous jobs that could cause someone to get injured, would normally put someone entirely into retirement. Yeah. Uh, as they're not able to work. However, with the introduction of synthetic opiates... Um, you can extend a worker's productivity time well past their expiration day mm. um, and exploit the human capital that's there at the sacrifice of that person's health. So like we saw with Daniel from episode 11, him drinking himself to get through his pain and his mental affliction, his own like human suffering. Absolutely. In the more recent industrialization time, synthetic opioids were that uh, balm essentially. Absolutely. And another thing that would really contribute to this threshold and trauma taking hold, uh, sinking its claws deep into the system, is really lack of marketing regulations in the United States surrounding uh, drugs and uh, that sort of things. Uh, whereas 
countries or semi country pseudo countries like the EU have a lot stricter regulations of not being able to market certain drugs directly to consumers or a lot more regulations on how doctors are approached. Right. And we'll see how that gets into play with the Sackler family and Purdue pretty quickly. But that kind of sets the scene for everything that was building before the Purdue empire. Absolutely. It's they were just the ones to take advantage of it. They saw the opportunity and they saw the exploitation. It could have been uh, another family. It just happened to be the Sackler family. Mm -hmm. So let's get into kind of the origins where all of it started. We start with the infamous trio of siblings, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond. They were all the children of a Jewish immigrant. Uh, how, how do you say this name? I- Galatia's mom, Poland, his dad. In the 1930s, in Flatbush, which is a region of Brooklyn, New York. We don't really know much about their parents, their youth. All we know is that Arthur basically acted as the patriarch. He kind of raised his brothers. You know, this is so foreign to me because I'm in... I absolutely love Peaky Blinders, and I can never see this character <laughs> named Arthur as the leader Arthur. of the family. It's it's so foreign to me. All right. Anyway, aside done. Uh, the siblings all went to medical school, which makes this so much worse. Yeah. I thought originally that they were all just businessmen. I was like, okay, it makes sense. That would like, make sense. Yeah, yeah. Like be like, but they, they know they know what they're doing consciously because they did go to medical school. Yes. Um, and they worked at the Creedor Psychiatric Center in Queens. And I think for these three brothers, their stint at the psychiatric center kind of acted as a mentor for them. I feel like psychiatric centers are where a lot of things go wrong. Yes. Um, we, we have Petio and yes. we have Dr. Dr. Cameron <laughs> and now the Sack. Mm. It, hmm. Although I did hear, I did hear that the Sacklers did do some benefit in the psychiatric realm. Yeah. They started off okay working in this. Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, they saw a lot of medical malpractice happening. I don't think it was classified as malpractice at the time, but seeing the act of lobotomies and electroshock therapy, you know, Cameron-esque shit, it really bothered them. They thought that this was abusing people and that there was a better solution to fixing uh, trauma and psychiatric illnesses. They believed, quote, if there's a chemical problem, there's a chemical solution. There was no affliction that cannot be prescribed a pill, unquote. These bros, like, pioneered medical techniques that are beneficial specifically at this time to stop these other practices, but then introduce systemic problems way later on. Um, specifically, what was great about kind of what they were doing is that maybe creating some of these new drugs, they are able to push for the end of lobotomies. Yeah. Which is awesome. Um, it, that's incredible. Lobotomies were a horrible practice. If you want to get into a, a fun, creepy story, just look at JFK's sister. Ugh. Um, yeah, that, 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 that's a pretty fun one. Anyway, uh, they also, uh, were pretty progressive and were able to end the racial segregation of blood banks, which is awesome, saving probably untold amount of blood. Yeah. So they don't sound like bad guys off the bat. It sounds like they are in the medical field for a reason and they are doing good things with it. After their stint at Creedmoor Psychiatric Center in 1952, the brothers bought Purdue Frederick Pharmaceuticals from a man named John Purdue Gray. Each of the brothers held one-third shares, and they used this kind of as their springboard. They had their medical studies, and they were ready to get into the field by having their own business. The company initially sold generic pharmacy products, kind of like 
wax in band-aids. However, that's not really profitable. You got to follow the Martin Shkreli um, playbook. No. What's that, Pertel? That is find a drug that you can basically monopolize and sell at a very high price to a multitude or as many people as possible in order to make a profit. Awesome. So... In order to get away from the small-time business of Band-Aids... Nobody wants to get booty hole wax or Band-Aids. No. They went into the branch of manufactured painkillers, so synthetic painkillers, and improving on things like morphine, creating compounds such as hydromorphone, which is uh, dilaudid. Um, they would eventually go on to inspire Belgian inventor... Paul Jansen to create uh, fentanyl as well, which would be a very vital part in the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. However, it kind of starts at more basic compounds uh, such as codeine and most notably oxycotton. Yes. Which was a new formulation that basically extended the release of the opioid. Yeah, we'll get into a little bit more of those details pretty soon. So they started their company. They started segueing into the chemical side of it. And Raymond and Mortimer moved said company to Yonkers, New York. And Arthur, being the father figure basically of these guys and the patriarch of the company, decided he was going to be the marketing man. He also bought a marketing company and started learning how to use such tactics to sell such to sell the drugs that Purdue Frederick was making. He pioneered medical advertising, and this is where the temptations and motivations come in. Oh, pray tell, what are the temptations? I can't possibly figure out what temptations there would be. Money! Money. <laughs> so Arthur's campaigns targeted and really appealed to doctors. Uh, and physicians to basically endorse the company's drug. I actually, in college, I took a bioethics course and we really covered uh, a lot of these sort of things. And it's surprisingly prevalent and kind of hard to uh, get around and manage mm -hmm. because it's like almost like lobbying in government. It's just really, really hard to. Lobbying with a little bit of a finer veneer to it. Like, oh, this businessman wants to take me out to dinner. Oh, it's a $300 steakhouse dinner. Well, I mean, I'll accept, of course. Yeah, or going to a strip club, maybe have more than um, a strip club would necessarily allow, as long as it... There's even some salespeople that were sleeping with doctors in order to get them to make them push more pills to their patients. Yes. It, it got pretty intense. There were free trips, free seminars, doctors being paid to do quote-unquote speaking events. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they would give their knowledge on whatever, but really the money was, that was just used to launder their, like, pill-pushing ways. With these tactics, Arthur crossed the line from promotion to fraud. He would rope in doctors, kind of starting, like, a multi-level marketing scheme, encouraging them to not only promote the drugs from Purdue Frederick to other doctors, but also basically creating fake doctors for testimonials and getting more and more people like roped into trusting and pushing and trusting and pushing and taking the medications that the company was creating. 
I mean, fake it until you make it, right? I guess. When it comes to medicine, like, that's really scuzzy. It, it's super scuzzy. And they did it in such a way at the very beginning that even when investigative reporters would go and try to find these false doctors, it was the advertisement was made in such a way that legal consequences couldn't be brought against the Sacklers. Right, they really even, cover their asses. Yeah, they covered their asses very, very well with a fine veneer of, oh, well, this stipulation says. Mm-hmm. So th- they become experts in that. But surprisingly enough, the Sackler family actually doesn't start off with Oxycontin. They actually start off with Librium and Valium, which are benzodiazepines, basically promoted by Arthur in the 1960s. And he kind of saw that he was getting blamed for a lot of the addiction in patients and patients kind of being reckless. It can be really bad as patients can kind of compulsively overdose. Oh, like with... um. Like Ambien. Yes. Yes. Uh, there's an entire subreddit thread, if it still exists, called like the walrus <laughs> or something like that. And it's just an entire things of like crazy shit that people have done while in, on Ambien as the drug mechanism causes you to uh, black out or have a lapse in memory similar to alcohol. I mean, you knew somebody who woke up in a crashed car after taking Ambien. Yes. So Valium has very similar effects to that. And it was being overprescribed by uh, Purdue Frederick. Unlike... The eventual uh, opiates, this is something that can be very uh, seen very easily externally. Mm. The later problems where, uh, as opiates can be very easy to hide in a multitude of people. Now, this is kind of an aside, but Arthur also happened to be an art collector, and he donated a bunch of collections in museums around the world. Now, why would he be doing this? Hmm, maybe it was to kind of put himself on some kind of pedestal? Or money laundering. Money laundering, and he got that money from selling drugs. You know, the classic way. (laughs) See, this is how you do it. You make it all legal. Guys, just do it in writing. Get lawyers. Lots of lawyers. So, in 1971, Raymond's son, uh, Richard, joined the business. And is this the one that uh, is kind of like an... The House of Usher? Yes, I believe Roderick Usher is based off of this Richard character. You just watch from watching that show, he is just cutthroat and kind of loses like humanity. Yes, absolutely. And I, th- I think you could argue, I think you could argue that happens to Richard, which we'll we'll see why, like as we go through the story. I believe that's. At the point in which Richard joins is the point of where their good actions start to cease and their profitability starts to increase. Yeah, I think they already started to cease with the like bribing doctors, basically. But now it is we are here for profits. Let's pour some gasoline on this flame. Mm -hmm. So really, really starts to get serious in 1984 when the company produced MS Cotton or... A type of morphine, like, infused with a salt that would create an extended release. Normally, these types of drugs were reserved for cancer patients Mm -hmm. who were in immense amount of pain and could possibly be facing the end of their life. Yeah, it was like a a last resort kind of care option. But because of the introduction of the extended release, it allowed for the Sackler family to basically purport that the addictive properties had been mitigated by the extended release version. Mm -hmm. This kind of gave them leeway to really start opening up the market to non-cancer patients. As now, 
this really addictive substance, it has all the benefits without all the downsides. A miracle drug. Theoretically. Theoretically. Which we they all knew. They all knew what it really was. Three years after MS Cotton was released to the public, Arthur died, and his stock options were sold to his brothers. So I think this could kind of be seen as a revelation death in the villain's arc. Not only did he die, obviously, but his brothers rebranded. This is when they have their Facebook becoming meta moment. Yeah, exactly. They call Purdue Frederick, now Purdue Pharma, and it's theirs. They incorporated it in 1991. After this nice old rebrand, slap a new face of makeup on kind of deal, things started to settle a little bit. Purdue's patent was beginning to expire over MS Cotton, and they did not want to lose any of that good, sweet, sweet cash from drugs. So they thought, okay, we need to come up with something new, something shiny, something based on pre-existing knowledge that we have, but better. So they researched a replacement. So in 1995, Purdue basically reformulated uh, oxycodone into a more slow-released form of the infamous oxycotton. And this is really overseen by uh, Richard Sackler. The son. Yes. And it has kind of the same justifications as the uh, MS cotton. Yeah, slow-release, non-addictive, even though, um, what is it, oxy... Even though oxycodone is more addictive than morphine. Yes, as it's a stronger version mm-hmm. uh, or more concentrated, closer to something like heroin than uh, the original like morphines. And also it doesn't have kind of that brand name tie to it of like laudanum or morphine or whatnot. Or Yeah, it's new in the public eye. Nobody has really heard about it for a long time because it was not marketable. But by redoing the chemistry and redoing the marketing for it, Oxycontin was able to be in the public mainstream. And with that ability, they saw dollar signs everywhere. And so they made a huge effort to do just marketing, marketing, marketing. There's not as many regulations, if any at all, Mm -hmm. about the marketing of drugs. So they were just throwing it to doctors. They they were giving... um, They were doing the crazy thing we'll delve more into the users but they would in the very beginning actually give free oxycotton in the quantity of hundreds to patients in order to potentially get them hooked almost like a drug dealer saying hey the first one's free yeah purdue pharma also claimed that there was no drug more effective or safer than opioids for treating pain over long term now They would eventually be sued over this claim in Kentucky in 2003, but they didn't know that at the time. They were all in marketing this new Oxycontin and trying to get everyone hooked on it. As you mentioned earlier, similar to uh, their MS cotton, it started off by only being marketed for um, end of life and pain, but then they promoted it. Yeah, Oxycontin was just essentially heroin pills. And with the rebrand, they would create a basic shell system to basically dole out these drugs to promote these for chronic and long-term conditions that involved pain. In fact, the American public didn't like considered pain entirely differently at this time. Uh, there were even some doctors who thought it was beneficial 
for your patients to have pain. It was a part of the healing process and a good sign. Mm-hmm. But with marketing, they spun this into, hey, pain is bad. It's affecting your productivity. Um, it's terrible for your mental health. Uh, are you suicidal? It's because you're not taking our drug. They told doctors that they should utilize a new system that they invented of where they asked their patients on a scale of one to 10, how much pain do you have? That was never a part of the a doctor's repertoire before the Sacklers. Exactly. Man, I feel like they sh- should have embraced Xenobites more. Pain is pleasure. <laughs> Dryness. Dryness. No, yeah, so anytime you go to a doctor's office and you're not feeling great and they ask you, rate your pain on a scale from 1 to 10, thank the Sacklers for that. There's some nefarious undertones from that little chart with the smiley faces you see. It's so insane that, like, it has become ingrained in healthcare around the world. Yeah, and if you ask people, they probably don't know that that's part of the practice now. It is set in stone, almost. The marketing was so heavy for that kind of procedure that it became one of the main pillars to ask for and was seen almost as bad as, like, getting cancer if you had a high pain. Mm -hmm. Doctors would be all like, oh my gosh, they're at a high risk for suicidal ideation if they're at an 8 out of 10 on the pain scale. We need to prescribe them as many opiates as we can to make sure that they're safe. And I mean, that's really hard call sometimes as a doctor. Do I prescribe this much or let you deal with it? Let you feel it. Yeah. Right. And especially that's really hard when a patient's coming to you and the TV is telling them that they can be fixed and that they don't have to go through this suffering. Um, and the doctor has to sit there and be all like, you know, it's very hard circumstance that the, uh, Sacklers put doctors in but there are also some doctors without ethics being all like more money sure right yeah sure i'll give it to you now as oxycontin was getting into the public repertoire the company was actually still seeking fda approval for the drug as you mentioned in our intro there were not as many regulations in the united states over things obviously the fda existed but you could kind of weasel your way around fda approval like the sacklers did They claimed they were a pioneer in developing medications for reducing pain, which was the principal cause of human suffering, Um, but they didn't properly test their medications. They made those claims. They didn't undergo any scientific, like, evaluation for it, so there was significant risk for uh, abuse of their medications and even death, but they found a way to bypass and get it FDA approved. And this is where we see the real beast start to come out. The Molochian system of corruption and governments uh, with three-letter agencies such as the FDA going all the way up to Congress. Like, not, like, some people would be like, oh, conspiracy theorists. No, 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 no. This this actually happened, documented, recorded. Dr. Curtis Wright IV, even, in the medical review office of the FDA, met with Purdue in a hotel room over the course of three days to approve their drug. I imagine they were just, like, drinking heavily and doing cocaine and like, yeah, party. Oh, shit, we need to get this thing. Hey, dude, can you approve my medicine? Thank you. Absolutely. They allowed the Purdue members to draft the review for the FDA. That's how lazy they're like, oh, you know, I don't really want to do my job. I just want to do cocaine. Here, do my you homework do it. for me. <laughs> wow. So they could just, like, write whatever. Absolutely. They could basically write whatever. And so they basically made an approval process with 
very ambiguous labels and regulations around this was giving it it basically gave it a green light yeah because they could make any of their claims saying that it was safe and non-addictive and you know just take it this way be careful whatever it's fine Shh. this is illegal on so many levels yeah it's not only bribery of an official it is also like it could be considered insider trading as mm. well if well i think it eventually ended kind of an in insider training because of what happens with right yes so it's unbelievable that this was even allowed to happen and that sets a precedent for that pattern to occur over and over and over again yes so moving forward after all this was going down right was actually hired by purdue a year later that's what, where the insider trading kind of comes in yeah yeah yeah. i mean it's just kind of like how senators get out of uh the senate and they'll, they'll be offered very high positions at certain companies because mm. you can't give a senator money directly but you can go hey if you do this you might have a really good cushy job at uh here at bp once you're finished mm. so it's a pretty common practice for Money influencing politics in the United States for business interest. Yeah. And Dr. Wright basically got 370k in compensation. Was it per year, do you know? I'm not sure. I think that was like a one-off. Still. And that's still a crazy amount of money, especially when we're talking in the 90s. Yeah. This guy working for the FBA, switching sides to work with the company, he, he, he made a pretty penny from that. A lot of people would say, like, that's so obvious. Like, how did, like, they get away with that? And all they did is they play a shell game. So once he got out of the FDA after all that ambiguous and whatnot, basically he's also avoiding uh, having to take responsibility later. Mm -hmm. Purdue doesn't hire him immediately, actually. They wait a year. They wait a year. And he gets hired by another company and go, oh, look, he's doing so well at the other company. And obviously those two companies are have mutual interest have said they already know that they're only have to support dr wright for like a year and then he's going to go over to purdue and be taken care of for the rest of his life so that's how it's not as obvious immediately so it's all these shell games and that will continue to happen it's the evil manipulation of uh richard is he's just such a dick <laughs> after oxycontin was falsely basically fda approved it totally took over the market with its limited potential for addiction and abuse according to purdue that's not sketchy at all not sketchy at all it's, it's the cure-all it's the wonder drug they called it the veritable treasure chest of untapped sales because so many people weren't getting their pain treated purdue marketers had the gall to say that it had less than a 1% chance of addiction. They claim that so that basically they could get it prescribed to non-cancer patients. Well, I mean, if your FDA-approved do document s says that you passed all your medical studies and whatnot and that there was no chance of addiction, then sure, everybody will believe that because the FDA signed off on it. What's even more evil is on top of this, they will later utilize these like this statement specifically to blame the addicts instead of the knowledge that they knew that this would be a lot more addictive than 1% or less than 1%. They would actually go on to claim later that the slow time release 
that they included does not cause addiction and everyone who is addicted is misusing it, crushing it and being a criminal. And it's, that's completely false. That That's absolutely false. As part of their marketing campaign for Oxycontin, they followed in Arthur's footsteps back when the company was first getting its bearings. New Purdue Pharma was also pressuring doctors into overprescribing these drugs with bribery, all expense paid vacations, and seminars, so they kept the shtick going. At first, everything has seemed normal and actually to be going really great in the American public at the time. Mm-hmm. There were, or at least that's how it appeared due to the marketing from Purdue. Absolutely. There were a bunch of anecdotes. Uh, I got my life back because of Oxycontin. I was able to do my job. I didn't feel like depressed anymore. It saved my life. This is a miracle drug. Everyone should be on it. Even if you have a slight headache, it'll make you better, more productive member of society. And this played into medical offices all across the nation. Yeah, they had like videos called I Got My Life Back on like doctor office room TVs. So you're sitting in the lobby, you're like, ah, oh, I got a really bad headache. And then you hear Martha's like, I've been taking two pills of Oxycontin every day and I never have headaches again. And you're like, hmm, maybe I should consider this. So the in- doctor, would this be right for me? Yeah. The direct marketing tactics and the doctors obviously have a deal with Purdue Pharma. So they're like, oh, well, yes, I have a bunch of Oxycontin in the back. Here you go. Eventually, this will turn into a pill mill, but we haven't gotten to that that blase yet. <laughs> yeah. Part of the marketing campaigns, Purdue also claimed that their prescriptions, there was no dose that was too high because of the way that they were manufactured. They weren't mixed with anything like Tylenol or ibuprofen, so you could take an 80 milligram dose of Oxycontin and be okay, and you could take it multiple times a day, so they claimed. There were even accounts of people on doses high enough to kill an elephant. Yeah. Or even look at someone like Kurt Cobain. When Kurt Cobain died, he had enough opioids in his system to kill two elephants. Jesus. So, their opioid therapy obviously proliferated across the nation because of this. And there seemed to be, like, some signs of, like, maybe something kind of weird about this whole situation, especially with that... It was too good to be true. Yeah, the unlimited amount, really? Like, I can eat a cereal bowl of these and it'll be fine. And when people are like, hey, I can't go my day without taking this Oxycontin, am I addicted? They're like, nah, that's just, like, pseudo-addiction or something. Right. Purdue convinced doctors that this was a kind of condition in a way. Basically, they said when a patient's looking like a drug addict, it's because they want pain relief. They're not actually addicted. They just need the relief. Come on, give it to them. So these spokespeople basically created their own medical terminology propaganda to increase amounts of opioids produced. And doctors bought into this. It was even classified later that they would prescribe a very high dose such as like 400 milligram doses because they saw sales reports that at that level that person would definitely become dependent on the opioid and thus increase sales as they continued to refill their prescriptions yeah so they're saying it's not addictive but they're seeing the numbers that people are hooked on it and so they started people off high to keep them high 
it's really interesting that they use the term pseudo addiction. And I don't know that much about medical history as I'm not in that industry, but I don't know if there was even distinctions between addiction and dependency at this time. So it makes it really, really confusing to uh, the public as well as the medical society in yeah, general. Fair. And you could see something like maybe we would call someone who is a stoner um, addicted to maybe weed, but not dependent. If they don't have weed, the withdrawal symptoms are very minor, such as like maybe more vivid dreams, like not bad at all. But when you have something like an opiate, you're going to go through some serious bodily withdrawals if you come off of it. And if that's not an addiction slash dependency, I don't know what is. Anyway, getting back to uh, the timeline, Purdue was so successful that it actually started running out of the base material, the poppy plant or opium, uh, because they were just demolishing fields and fields and fields. So... They partnered up with Johnson & Johnson. A family company. Hey, they, they made an alright vaccine, I suppose. Um, who found a process to basically concentrate the poppies in Tasmania by utilizing uh, GMOs, that sort of fun stuff. They made super poppies, essentially. And they also pioneered a different harvesting technique for it, where typically when you are getting opium from a poppy, you'll scrape the outer shell, collect the sweet, sweet nectar from it. That's where you get your drug from. But they also, with their genetic modification of it, were able to harvest parts of the stems and I believe even the leaves of the poppy plant in its entirety to synthesize medication from. Yes, they collected the entire straw as they didn't have to have the poppies grow i guess in a reliable manner they could actually do it at a factory level Mm -hmm. or at a large scale with automation technology and not having to include as many humans in the process and instead using equipment so instead of yeah like you said the labor intensive process they introduced mechanized systems to basically turn tens of thousands of acres of tasmania into just popeye level poppies Just super strength poppies. Make it faster, make it cheaper, make it better. I also think that this is a pretty important time to kind of pick up that while this is a very American issue currently, it's by no means the only country suffering from an opioid epidemic. There's like other countries such as uh, Liberia has a pretty big problem with kids as young as eight uh, being addicted to illicit opioids, uh, as well as uh, in some parts of Greece, there were high amounts of opioid addiction after the or following the financial crisis. There's even speculation that countries like Tasmania seem pretty great for the production of poppies, but Also, one of the reasons that it could have been beneficial for us to be inside of Afghanistan is not because of the oil, like most people think we were there for, or, you know, the uh, conspiracy theories think we're there for. 
I think it's more likely that if you're going to go with a conspiracy theory of trying to extract resources due, colo- due to colonialism. Conspiracy corner. Conspiracy corner. It's a conspiracy. That's what it is. A conspiracy. They were actually there because Afghanistan is one of the best places on earth to grow poppies. And they have a huge, huge market for it, as it was probably one of the origin points for poppies joining humanity. Hmm. So that's my kind of conspiracy for uh, kind of uh, United States colonialism inside of uh, Afghanistan. But that's more conspiracy. And I, I do think we could have been there for legitimate reasons. Well, because of these catch-all pain-relieving properties, Oxycontin became a blockbuster drug. Not the movie company. Uh, Oxy- Wait, what company? What? Huh? Netflix? Oxycontin brought in an estimated $2.8 billion in revenue between 1995 and 2001, which is just kind of wild that it's so prolific. And and that's just in the U.S. too. Like you mentioned, it's not like you mentioned, it was distributed all over the world. So these are just U.S. statistics. Correct. You say those are pretty big numbers, but... Those are rookie numbers. Got to get those numbers up. Got to pump them. Keep going. The drug claimed to have relieved pain for about 12 hours, but we all know that's not, like, it lasts. It claimed anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, By hour eight, it had basically worn off completely or was not at an effective level within the bloodstream Mm -hmm. to treat uh, symptoms and withdrawal would start to occur. Thus, Oxycravings would basically drive people into taking more and more and more and more. As the effects would wear off, you would need to take more. Then that would, you know, they would wear off sooner, increasing more, leading to a cycle of needing a lot more of the drug than you originally did. Mm-hmm. So Purdue was kind of aware that the pain relief wasn't for 12 hours and they had in the labs. But they actually buried the lab studies. More money that way. If people are re-upping more, they're going to be paying for your medication more. Yes. They deliberately hid it from the FDA and marketed it to protect all of the revenue. They also advised doctors to keep patients on the 12-hour cycle, but to prescribe stronger doses if they needed it. Now, of course, more and more people were taking to these larger doses, these heroic doses of oxycotton, according to the medical instruction pamphlet, of course, which was approved by the FDA, even though it had the fraudulent claims, that it's the medical instruction said taking broken, chewed, or crushed oxycotton tablets could lead to the rapid release and absorption of potentially toxic doses. Makes sense. Don't chew it. It was designed for a slow release, even though the slow release was a little bit of a lie in a way. Absolutely. But because you have these printed instructions saying, oh, you're going to get the big high if you take it really fast, people started doing just that. They read the instructions and realized, oh, you can get the full dose all at once. So, Such as you shouldn't buy abortion drugs for horses from a veterinary clinic. Kind of like that, right? Yes. So they had fine print saying what to do, essentially. Yes. And sales soared. Sales went absolutely insane. 
and so did the people dropping left, right, and center. It was almost like a plague, an invisible plague that was man-made. I mean, it's called the opioid epidemic for a reason. Absolutely. So from 99 to about 2020, the statistics look like there was about 841 thousand people that had died from drug overdoses in the united states it's between 640 and 840,000, with prescription and illicit opioids being directly responsible for at least 500,000 of those and now that's just in the u.s i've also heard that these drug overdoses are highly underreported too so these numbers could be actually way higher than we suspect someone takes too much, they overdose on their prescription, they get into a car accident, the accident's ruled as car accident. Mm -hmm. Their death's ruled as car accident instead of um, overdose. Or I'd imagine if you have other substances in your system, or even just, like, stigmatization, maybe people are too ashamed to, like, actually properly report an overdose. So realistically, we might be looking in the cases of millions that have been directly killed because of the opioid crisis. In the early 2000s, there were specific parts of the U.S. that started to take notice of the people that were dropping. Notably, Maine, the Appalachian region, and West Virginia saw people not only abusing, but getting addicted to and overdosing on Oxycontin. And I think what was the tipping point for them to start wanting to take action was their kids were dying. Folks in West Virginia were led by a doctor named Art Van Zee, And they filed a petition with the FBA to put a recall on Oxys. Uh, They went to Congress over it, too. They went to Congress over the opioid drug drug epidemic that was happening in their communities. And I think it's unfortunate that you'd have to wait until, like, oh, the kids are dying to actually take action on it. But it's better that they took action at all. It's really interesting because we're looking at this uh happening at what about like 2000s early 2000s era we see a very very similar uh occurrence happening currently uh with a new drug called trank and things like philadelphia Mm -hmm. and in cities like vancouver it's just repeating itself history rhymes there's yeah, there's very little. It's it's different, but it's scarily similar. I and would it's say. scarily recent, too. Yes. So, as I mentioned earlier, Purdue would go on to blame the addicts themselves. And that's how they pitched it to Congress, saying, we're not at fault. It's those degenerates that are the real problem. So, Purdue's medical advisor, J. David Haddock's, that oxys weren't addictive. He was basically Mark Zuckerberg-ing the... <laughs> they're like, you don't have no idea about any of what this is. Just let me speak at you and you hand wave it and pretend like you've done your job. He would, like, make ridiculous statements like, well, you see, it's th- just those degenerates. If I gave you a stalk of celery and you ate that, it would be healthy. But if you put it into a blender and try to shoot into your veins, it would not be good. However, why would you, what would the purpose, <laughs> at least there's a purpose to injecting right. opioids, whereas celery, that's just going to, it's not going to turn you into pie pie, that's just going to put, it's, you're going to have celery heart. No one wants a celery heart. You're going to become a vegetable. Anyway. 
So Haddock's convinces Congress. It's not our fault. It's the addicts. But they had some PR. Purdue had some PR that they needed to cover for this. They sponsored a substance abuse program called Radar's Researched Abuse, Diversion, and Addiction-Related Surveillance to surveil addiction in various communities. But obviously, they're in it for the money. They don't want to actually solve the problem. They didn't give a shit. It was kind of just uh, a facade, essentially. Yeah, it was a great cover-up, like a magic trick. Kind of like how in some cities, if there's construction going on in a building, they'll just put a giant tarp of what the building looks like over it. Yeah. It was like that. They're like, oh, we, we're in medical. We are the good medical guys. Here, we are funding a an addiction surveillance thing, but we're still doing, we're still making the drugs. We're still selling the drugs. Manufacture the problem and manufacture the answer. Yep. It makes perfect sense with all the scuzzy, slimy, weird bullshit that the man, the king of weird laws and, like, filth, Rudy Giuliani, ex-mayor of New York, was hired by the Sacklers to help their PR campaign to basically shut down all of the opposing parties that might try to stop them. Any little weird shenanigans that go on, I feel like he's somehow involved with. Like, he always pops up. I I don't even know. He doesn't even seem, like, that competent in doing (laughs) what he's supposed to do. But they're always all like, who who can we... I know, Rudy Giuliani, he doesn't have ethics. Get him. Okay, maybe he was competent, because he actually did shut down a lot of Purdue's... Bad press. Early attackers. Yeah. So by 2003, the DEA had found that Purdue had dramatically exacerbated the widespread misuse of oxys. Yeah. Because at this time, the market had expanded. It wasn't just Purdue. They opened the entire market to other companies coming in, like, uh, I think it's Instance, which we will cover in a bit. Yeah. But uh, it opened a billion-dollar market. The floodgates. Anyone could sell these drugs. So a bunch of companies started making generics, making them cheaper, making them more, following the capitalistic system to try to get to the top. Yes. Shortly after the DEA found, a man named John Brownlee led the Department of Justice to start investigating the Sacklers. They had heard about the exacerbation and misuse and promotional campaigns, and they wanted to prove the criminal activities of the Sacklers, essentially. So finally, somebody is starting to dig around going, ah, this is suspicious, this is not correct, let's see what we can get them on. The top Purdue execs knew that if that was to continue through, they were probably facing prison time. They had actually known all the way back in 1996 that oxys were easily accessible and already widely abused. I mean, they're the ones who basically wrote the FDA statement to cover up these properties. So They had already planned the degenerate argument, and I'm sure all of the other legal cases way in advance because they had prior knowledge that they knew they would be getting into trouble. Yeah. They knew they would be, like, facing obstacles as they tried to be a better drug dealer. So... They knew that the street traffic of the drug was so common that it even had a name. It was called hillbilly heroin because people would take the pills. They were legal. 
and then they would melt them down uh, for injection, utilizing yeah. a spoon to inject the drug and get that full dose. And all of it's covered by insurance. A Purdue sales rep, specifically uh, Stephanie Kaufman, like even purposely went out to recruit an ex-heroin addict named Blinn, who suffered from chronic pain, and he basically became the poster child. This is another act of, like, Purdue basically putting on a facade. Yes. It really damaged this man's life. And what was crazy about this is, before we even get to his experience, Stephanie Kaufman got in contact with this guy by sleeping with his doctor. Getting his private medical information. Yes, by getting his private medical information and knowledge, she absolutely knew about his condition. She knew that he'd be best to target it. And then she planned to be at the doctor's office, visiting the doctor specifically when he would come in, so that she could pitch to him specifically that he should try a new formulation of produced drugs. So cold and calculated. Like, that's disgusting. Yes. He... I don't remember how he initially got his pain. But his pain seemed to be almost untreatable. Mm -hmm. He suffered greatly. He was not able to do really anything. So they initially prescribed him a pretty high dose of oxys. But that was baby stuff for him. He still had shooting pain going like all the way up through his spine. He still couldn't really function. And he felt the only way was he's like, hey, can I increase the dose and whatnot? And basically the Purdue sales rep, Stephanie would tell the doctor that since it is a new drug, uh, we've seen our studies, even though the studies weren't proving that at all, that since this is so safe and effective, he can basically have any amount that he wants. They were also doing this subversively to make the claims that you can take the ultimate amount of oxys, like no dose is too high. This is the guy that would have been on the dose for an elephant. Yeah. I think at the maximum, they had him on up to 50 pills a, a day, day, which was, in his words, the equivalent of 200 hits of heroin. Yes. He said that it would often take him 15 minutes just to go through his initial dose and then another 15 minutes in the afternoon to go through his other dose. And he would just sit there and eat out of a cereal bowl for 15 minutes. No, I think he described that it was like eating a cereal bowl's worth of pills. Yeah. And just be like, pill, water, pill, water, pill, water. 15 minutes straight every single day. And he said it didn't, like, as the doses got higher, his pain wasn't really eased at all. He said uh, that it wasn't eased as much as that. It wasn't eased as much as he wished. And when it did become sufficient to ease his pain, he started experiencing side effects where his body felt like it was toxic, like it was oozing out poison. And well, I imagine at that point, his body is probably rejecting it too. Yes. And that toxicity, he felt like caused him pain. And the only way to get rid of that toxic pain is to take more oxys. So the cycle continues. It continues and even worse. Luckily, in 2006, more and more people were becoming aware of Purdue Pharma's malpractice essentially so a lawyer named paul hanley assembled another lawsuit against them he gathered up five thousand patients like blinn 
who claimed they were addicted to oxys because they were overprescribed them, or at least falsely marketed. These pronouncements about how safe the drug was emanated from the marketing department, not the scientific department. So Purdue went to court over their marketing claims, and they settled these claims for around $75 million. But it was basically like hush money for them. There wasn't any repercussions from this 2006 suit. They paid out, they continued operations. So in 2007, it becomes blatantly obvious what is occurring with opioids in the United States. However, obviously going to Congress did not work. No, they just paid the fine and got off. The next step for people trying to mitigate the opioid epidemic would go through the court system. Specifically, federal prosecutors in Virginia summoned past sales reps in order to like, testify for the overprescription of oxys, oxycotton, oxycodone. I think some whistleblowers that had worked at Purdue made some statements, and that really prompted this. Absolutely. Entirely reasonable, too, especially because okay. a lot of them were told just like, this is your job to sell. This is your job to sell. This is your job to sell. And they're like... Hey, what about that doctor that was arrested? What about those patients that were dying? That's none of your concern. Your concern is to sell Oxycontin. You don't need to worry about it. Put on the horse blinders. Keep working. And for some of them, that's not acceptable. They actually are human beings that can not just autonomously follow, you know, just instructions given to them. Mm -hmm. So... Purdue was called out for misleading the public on how addictive Oxycontin was. This was blatantly obvious. We know the yeah, past... they been tried for this before. Yeah. And it was basically compared to other pain meds on its, like, addictiveness and whatnot. And it was kind of spun. And it was basically killed right then and there. And it paid out one of the largest fines ever against a pharmaceutical firm. Because they settled. And one of the reasons they would like to settle is so they didn't have to reveal the information and statistics that they actually did have. They're just like, here's the money. Don't look at our data. Yeah. But that's where the trial kind of went different. Because it did cover their nationwide criminal conspiracy. It was released that... The FDA had partnered with them, or at least that one guy from the FDA, to falsely and fraudulently approve of Purdue and Sackler's marketed Oxycontin and concealed the indicative nature of it while pushing it on doctors. So this is finally at the forefront in the court system. Yeah, you could say it's addictive over and over again. You could have 5,000 plus people testify that they have been addicted, but they finally have evidence now. There was collusion with the FDA to falsify documents, and that's where things took off. So it wasn't a total victory, but at least there's some progress on it, they I al- would say. Yeah, yeah. They also brought up other charges, too. Yeah, like including, like, what, wire fraud, mail fraud, uh, money laundering. Mm, they could have used Episode nine sponsor, IRS to finance to help them with their money laundering and Whoa. fraud. <laughs> All these charges kind of culminated in Purdue pleading guilty to the felony of misrepresenting oxys, like I said, and to kind of bury everything. While the fine was six to seven hundred million dollars, we're talking about an industry that's making billions of dollars a year. So this is a drop in the bucket. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
It's kind of like how, uh, I've heard this joke of a man goes to a, like, motel or a hotel or something like that. It's like, oh, can you please give me the smoking room? And they're like, sir, this is the 90s. Like, we don't have smoking rooms anymore. Uh, it's going to be a $200 fine if you smoke in this room. And so the man goes, oh, so every room's a smoking room if I pay $200 more. Wow. Yeah. I mean, essentially, they see it like that. Yeah. Yep. And if you have the money to spare, they, you know, you have the freedom in the United States. Or like how if rich people get put in jail, they can post bail easily because they got that cash money to do so. This is basically happening over and over again with the Sacklers. Capital's king. Because they didn't have to release any of the evidence and whatnot, the scale of the problem was not as evident. Thus, there was no need for a drug recall after the settlement. So they really swept it under the rug again. Yes. They admitted to a little bit and then omitted a lot, which is a really effective strategy in this. It's it's kind of creepy how effective they were. Obviously, mm-hmm. very high IQ individuals running this at Evil Incorporated. With damn good lawyers, too. Yes. And the kind of lawyers that will switch from the government side to their side in a split second, just there. So Purdue, run by the Sacklers, saw this fine, and while it was a drop in the bucket, obviously it still needs to be recouped. Mm-hmm. And you know what's the best way to make some money mm. to recoup to recoup these fines? Push more oxies, of more course. Drugs. I mean that's their business. That's what they do. So in almost trying to solve their problem it's gonna going to make it worse well they also thought the best way to do this was to make their drugs stronger too yes they they made it stronger more expensive and they had that statistic of starting people on a higher dose and that's when it really came to effect they had refined the formula for making people zombies and i would say they kept america hooked regardless of any legal repercussions that can be taken. In the mid and late 2010s, both Mortimer and Raymond died, but they still had children and shareholders to keep the company running. As the company continued producing and pumping drugs, lawsuit after lawsuit continued to be filed against them, and they continued to pay it off. Of course, they knew marketing tactics, so they thought, let's slap on another PR campaign, They started focusing on creating abuse-deterring formulas of medications, but of course they kept that facade and still marketed and sold opioids until as late as 2019. And in between that period, they had also inspired other companies, such as like Insys with the uh, founder, John Kimpour, taking delicate notes on how the Sacklers had manufactured or engineered their profits in this crisis. How to get away with murder. How to get away with murder, basically. Yeah, and in 2013, a new drug hit the streets called fentanyl. Which would be highly utilized by not only Purdue, but also Insys and a multitude of other companies. So in 2019, more than 500 counties, cities, and Native American tribes named the family, the Sackler family specifically, um, I think it was... Richard, Jonathan, 
Mortimer, and I think Richard's dead by this point. Uh, so is, Mortimer is. Okay, Mortimer is. Koth? Is that how you say that? Or Kath? Kathy? Kathy? Koth? Koth sounds cooler and more ominous. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> David, uh, Beverly, Teresa, and Eileen. That's a big family. Yeah. It's a huge gotta family. Gotta keep that empire going. Gotta keep that money flowing through somewhere. I suppose so. Anyway. The defendants in the lawsuit, due to their involvement in the uh, opioid epidemic, were active or former members of the board of directors of Purdue Pharma at the time. And I think a few of them denied any involvement, but they all held some seat in some way or some involvement in Purdue Pharma. I mean, it's part of the family. It's part of the bloodline at this point. So the Sackler family were named as defendants and their family name was tarnished. They faced over 1,600 cases in which Purdue Pharma was accused of playing a special role in inciting the opioid crisis because of their persuasion of medical establishments to overprescribe opioids without the care for addictive properties. There were institutions such as Tree Life, who. Life Tree, yeah. Or Life Tree, that would almost have a 50% patient death rate. Because of the overprescription. And the doctor there was like, oh, well, no, it's fine. It's just a We treat high-risk patients. Of yep. course, that number would be high. And it's like, yes, but does someone need to die because they have low back pain? Right. And these were all, like, related to opioid deaths, too. Right. Now, towards the beginning of the Sackler family that we were covering... We mentioned that Arthur was a proud donor of a lot of art stuff and maybe money launderer too. Uh, but after more and more of these lawsuits and these claims were brought into public light, a lot of institutions that held Arthur's donations or had named wards after the Sacklers said, no, we can't be associated with this anymore. Places like the National Portrait Gallery, the Guggenheim, the Met, all refused donations or rebranded their wards to not be affiliated with this fucked up family any longer. And it's surprising because they did still find ways to try to do quote-unquote philanthropy. <laughs> However, it's mostly characterized by like money laundering or uh, being framed as blood money because it came from like the deaths of the cells of opiates and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But... This is a pretty standard rich person thing. Yeah. Make make a uh, foundation, um, pretend it's for charity, put it into stocks to say you're making a profit to indefinite into the future, use it as it makes you look good while you're actually making tons and tons of money in the background. It's pretty standard. I wonder uh, if Elon Musk's child school is actually for profit. No idea. <laughs> Alan Francis, the former chair of psychiatry at Duke University School of Medicine, said about the Sacklers, their name has been pushed forward as the epitome of good works and of the fruits of the capitalist system. But they've earned this fortune at the expense of millions of people who were addicted. So by the time that 2019 has rolled around, we enter a event horizon, I could say, in the whole process yeah. of Purdue, the company, the what they started, Sacklers, and the opioid epidemic happening in America. And I think the event horizon for this is it turning up to a new level. And that is 
basically a third opium war. So China sees how this epidemic is unfolding and how the United States isn't properly handling this. And they take advantage of it. They take advantage of the situation as during the first opium wars, they were taken advantage of by the British. They see what's been done to them, and they see it as an opportunity to also do it to their main adversary in the United States. Is that fact or speculation? This is all speculation. This isn't official. It's very hard to pin down. Um, however, I would say that it's pretty obvious when it's occurring. Um, we've had Donald Trump talk about it, and uh, also uh, Joe Biden having pretty serious talks with uh, Xi Jinping about the status of opioid precursors uh, coming into the United States in a non-regulated fashion. The first opium wars actually started off for China as what they call a century of humiliation. That's how bad it got for China. And China would not even recover until the People's Republic of China was founded in something like 1949, don't quote me on that, in which they really handled the situation by making opiate use a death sentence. And they found that they had to do this because they thought about legalizing it and whatnot, but they thought that the only way to actually tackle the brutality of what opium had done to their country was to do a death sentence. That's pretty drastic. Yes. But I can tell you why it was so drastic. It was because during the first opium wars, at the height of uh, opium use, about 25% of all Chinese males spent all day long smoking opium, causing a vast economic deficiency as well as a geopolitical uh, deficiency as there was not as much productivity, military powers or soldiers. Yeah. It it got to the point of where it almost caused the country to collapse entirely and never recover. And that's kind of wild to think because currently in the U S there is a 44% reduction in the male workforce due to opioids. So history rhymes once more absolutely it's really kind of scary that while china didn't initially start this they saw the opportunity after the 2018 trade war with the united states and the opportunity being you can't get the full drug essentially into the country but you can get what's called analogs or the precursor to make said drug up through places like Mexico into the U.S. where it can be uh, chemically created once you combine all of the precursors to make things like fentanyl. Yes, and that uh, kind of allows China to talk out of both sides of its mouth because it's like, we dealt with the problem by making this dealing and um, consumption a death sentence. United States, if you want to solve your problem, do it at a death sentence. But at the same time, during the 2018 trade war, they actually subsidized the factories that were making the precursors that were selling it to the cartel uh, in order for them to import into the United States in order to give to addicts who lost their insurance or came through circumstances. Yeah. So that's currently ongoing. And despite discussions 
for it to stop. It's been really hard to pin down as Chinese-United States relations remained strained. Yeah. Now, I don't think that this speculative third opium war would have ever been possible without the Sackler's intervention back in the 90s and the early 2000s, or even going as far back as the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so I think they're really at heart for this because China was, it's only being opportunistic. They're not, they weren't being malevolent at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it really, the responsibility for this falls on the Sackler family. Yeah, because they set the precedent for this medical malpractice and getting people hooked on drugs and opium and with a substance that's pretty hard to get off of Mm -hmm. with withdrawals lasting sometimes three weeks three to four weeks if not causing someone to be hospitalized and so i guess like from a nationwide perspective one could see china going oh well there's an addiction problem can profit off of it like the sacklers profited off of pain Anyway, that brings us to September 2019, where Purdue filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, protection, basically in New York City. And this was really in an attempt to try to pull another fast one, basically. In October of 2020, Purdue reportedly like reached a settlement that was about $8.3 billion dollars. But a lot of that $8.3 billion will never actually be paid out. And no. it's almost a non-existent amount. As Since they filed for bankruptcy before the settlement came in. So that money would go nowhere. Yes, it's, it's living somewhere weird. And also the only way they would be able to get the money even. Is through the company, which is bankrupt now. If this was a perfect world, one could see this and a villain's journey as being an atonement or a resolution. Uh, at least with the settlement, but because of the bankruptcy, the Sackler family is getting off. The Committee on Oversight and Reform of the U.S. House of Representatives held a hearing about Purdue and everything going on, and they agreed that the family and the company's actions were sickening. Now, Purdue Pharma did admit that it knowingly and intentionally conspired and agreed with others to aid and abet doctors dispensing medication at an outrageous amount and addictive properties without legitimate medical purpose. What's also pretty insane is that by the time 2019 has rolled around, it's gone beyond obvious and now it's just normal. It's just a normal thing now. You have a oxy highway where everything is just littered with pill mills and people will drive hundreds of miles to go see a doctor they go into the clinic and the DEA like even had like some undercover officers who would go in to the doctor and the doctor would be all like all right so uh how are you doing the patient would be like oh, I- i'm feeling fine and then the doctor would be like all right do you need some uh some oxys the doctor would be like oh okay uh, you're feeling fine today. That's great. But I imagine you would need some oxycodone, right? Or some oxycotton. And they'd be like, yeah, that would sound great. Uh, could I also get some Appian or some benzodiazepines? So John Mulaney's doctor. Yes, John Mulaney's doctor. That's He's like, all cracked out and basically, yeah. I'll give um, you whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just take off your shirt. Um, which actually did happen. I heard there was a lot of doctors who would sleep with patients in order to 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd be like, if you sleep with me, then I will prescribe you however many oxys you want. So just complete manipulation. Complete manipulation and disregard for ethics. Um, not even observing. There's multitude of doctors who weren't even observing the patient themselves, but were just legitimate drug dealers trying to seek the highest dollar amount. And you would also have pharmacies where it should be the job of a uh, pharmacist to look at your script, see that you're coming from 200 miles away, <laughs> see that you're taking... This is not your typical home pharmacy. What are you doing in Iowa? Right. Why are you taking such a high dose of oxys? And also, you're taking it with a benzodiazepine. This puts you at a very great risk for respiratory failure if your system was to become too depressed. As those like medications shouldn't be often mixed. But these are the type of pharmaceuticals that are just looking for the money to come in. And so they were they would be established all the way from Florida going through Appalachia where it was hit the hardest and all the way up to going even into the very top of Maine. the United States. Like yeah. Michigan so that's or what Maine. You mean by the the pill mill highways from Florida to Maine. Yes. They're commonly just- known as Oxy uh the Oxy Highway. It, that's how normalized it become. It wasn't just blatantly obvious. It was just a yeah, this is America. So the family members of Purdue were required to pay out $225 million from their personal assets and close the company. Finally. Instead, we know how these guys play. We know they're... Tr- <laughs> it's not going to stop them. They, 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 have, they have will. They have the will to power. Purdue restructured as a new company and they decided to dedicate it to combating the opioid crisis. What the fuck ever? Which is obviously just a front or, like, some smokescreen. The family would pay about $4.5 billion over the nine years, or at least that's what's promised, to resolve the court claims. And in exchange, all of the execs get basically immunity from uh, criminal prosecution, or at least the family members. I think it's family and exec. They essentially use bankruptcy to escape any charges or proper consequences. There were a few who did go to jail in different companies, though. However, their sentences were also very light. Right. Um, sometimes only being from a year to five years, but having hundreds of thousands of deaths. Wasn't it the uh, executive of Insys, uh, which John manufactured Kapoor? fentanyl, was only sentenced to five years? Yes, I believe he was sentenced to five years, and he was able to retain a lot of his wealth. I would say the majority of his wealth. Great. So more recently, the Sacklers have agreed to never produce opioids again. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kept that promise by dissolving Purdue in September of 2021. But... All of that was a fancy wordplay game for rebranding and changing Purdue to Kanoa Pharma to basically keep the money coming in. Just rebrand, change names, same it's thing. Like the bankruptcy never happened. Same day, different name. It's like uh, Marcel Pitio with all his passports hopping around as fake doctors. Yep. Episode seven. In March of 2021, the U.S. House of Representatives came back 
And we're like, no, 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 we, we got to do something to stop these guys. We have to stop Team Rocket from blasting off again. <sighs> so they introduced a bill to stop the bankruptcy judge from granting the Sacklers immunity during the proceedings. He's like, don't let them get off scot-free. They need to be punished for this in some way. In October of 2021, the House Judiciary Committee referred the Sackler case to the Subcommittee on Antitrust, Commercial, and Administrative Law. So trying to push things through, we can kind of predict what might happen, but people are actually going harder against the Sacklers for some kind of retribution. I think during the pandemic and with all of the struggles of the pandemic, we probably saw a lot more people uh, dropping left, right, and center as the healthcare system was strained. Mm -hmm. And I think people really got fed up with this bullshit yeah. honestly so in december of 2021 u.s judge colleen mcmahon i think is her name ruled that the bankruptcy judge did not have the authority to give sacklers immunity so that was uh, but like there's actually some steps coming forward yeah so in january of earlier this year which is 2023 future proofing the podcast big brain moves the Anti-immunity bill uh, has actually lapsed at the end of the most recent Congress, uh, hearing, like yeah. getting together thing. You know, the, the congressional Congress hearing. Does, yes, not a congressional hearing, but like them like assembling. Yes, yes assembling is yes. the word. Yes, 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 yes. And that ruling was actually kind of delayed in August of 2023 by the Supreme Court, pending an oral argument that should come up next month, actually. Mm -hmm. Yes, by the time this episode is released, it will be just before December. So stay tuned to the news, see what the verdict is for the Sacklers. I think we can Ooh, imagine. How contemporary of us. <laughs> yes. As of August, Purdue Pharma remains in Chapter 11 bankruptcy limbo. They're pending this Department of Justice appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but as far as we and many other people can speculate, these bankruptcy proceedings are just going to continue. Yep. And while the Sackler family may no longer own Purdue Pharma, they're getting on the latest trend, mm -hmm. pumping and dumping. Except at least they're avoiding cryptocurrency, I would say. <laughs> I, I would say that that's the only beneficial thing. They're doing it the old-fashioned way. They They bought up a tiny firm, uh, or a, not tiny firm, a lower profile firm, I should say, yeah. which is Mundi Pharma. And they're kind of trying to get it to where they can pump up its stock prices and whatnot, own it, sell it off, avoid responsibility, and then creep into the dark shadows of the back rooms of the United States and become a Rockefeller kind of family or a Rothschild kind of family that holds a ton of money and influence within politics. It's kind of funny that you bring that up, actually, because despite all of the lawsuits and all of the lives lost under the Sackler family, they still have a net worth of over $13 billion, which just reaffirms that was their motivation all along. And they're actually within the monetary range of the Rockefellers, being considered one of America's richest and most evil families. 
I would also think that with this Mundi Pharma, obviously they're going to try and sell it, but I bet they're going to try and make a pretty penny off of fentanyl too. No American family has profited more from controlled substances than the Sackler family. And I'm hoping that in December, the families affected by them will actually see justice and people in the Sackler family will be properly punished. That may be optimistic, but... It's kind of hard. I think the best possible outcome would be not as great as it sounds or not as ideal as it sounds. I think that the best course of action would be to keep them out of jail. So they would not go to prison, but that's contingent on removing their wealth. Um, I mean, one could say that like paying out those suits, like that $4.9 million over the nine years would be that, but they're not going to pay that out likely. Or, like, they probably won't finish paying that out. Like you said, the the initial few lawsuits, money is in limbo because of the bankruptcy. But are you, like, if, are you saying actually, like, take the money away from them would be the ultimate retribution? Yeah, because you can't really pay back the lives lost and jail time still is, like... <laughs> yeah, they'd just be hanging out with Bernie Madoff playing tennis, like, eating fancy foods. They... Since they are white collar, they going to prison sounds like a punishment. However, because it is a white collar crime on the federal level, uh, they would be kind of sent to summer camp. Um, they would not get the kind of punishment that I think a lot of people expect. And especially with money, yeah. they can do whatever they want in prison, and then they will still probably be able to operate inside of prison true, true. because of cell phones. So the crux would be stripping them of the source of their power and the source of what has caused all this pain. Correct, and their desire. Kind of taking away... That motivation. That motivation, precisely. I think that's the best course of action. I wouldn't give them a fine to be paid out out of a certain material... Um, I would think it would be in the United States' best interest to nat- uh, nationalize their assets, mm. which is legal for the United States to do. I also think that the Sacklers were able to justify their actions in their own head for so long because they weren't really forced to sit in front of their victims. Yeah. So to speak. That was until like 2022 in which they had a two hour long virtual bankruptcy hearing, kind of like a weird zoom call. You yeah. know, that sounds like the most exciting zoom call ever. Mm-hmm. Uh. Anyway, the hearing included David Richard and Teresa Sackler, and they heard directly from a few of the people that were directly affected by Purdue's overprescription of Oxycontin. Specifically, David and Teresa were on camera, but probably for optics, Mr. Dick himself was not really that present. He had his video off and didn't sound like he contributed much, so he was probably doing cocaine in the background <laughs> or something and like not even listening, probably put on some podcast. Prior to this meeting, actually, they had signed an an agreement that they would not talk other than to acknowledge their presence there. So it was pretty much for optics, unfortunately. But 
after years of painting the people affected by Oxycontin in their emails as slime addicts and lowlifes, the Sacklers were face-to-face with the real everyday Americans, many of whom were not addicts, that died because of their drug. Many of those testifying held photos of their loved ones and gave various statements. Some of the statements would be like Kimberly Blake, who had a son that OD'd on oxys. She even went on to say that, as a physician and a mother, I have been consumed with grief. In 2022, I was hospitalized with major depression because I just couldn't face another Mother's Day without him. Referring to her boy. Another woman detailed the experience of her 88-year-old father, who was an army vet, of course, suffering from chronic pain. He became addicted to Oxycontin and would often be found wandering naked at night, wanting to kill himself in a delusional headspace. Donna Merzik's daughter was prescribed Oxy after a root canal. Her daughter became addicted and OD'd at the ripe old age of 22. In the hearing, she told the Sacklers, You murdered my daughter, and you destroyed my family. Christy and Bill Nelson also lost their son at a very young age in his 20s due to an overdose. We have a recording from Christy's 911 call. I need an ambulance. My son's not breathing. What's the address? 
we, in a way, have also been affected by this. I mean, this is a little bit of an aside, but hearing how many young 20-year-olds overdosed very quickly from mundane prescriptions like getting a root canal. I recently had a surgery and I was not prescribed Oxycontin, but I was prescribed an opiate. And just thinking about like, had I taken a few too many and got addicted, I could have been like the Nelson's son. One thing I also found interesting after this surgery was I was prescribed Narcan, which I was a little bit surprised about, but I was glad that I was in case something had happened and you were trained on how to use it. I learned how to use it. We taught our friends how to use it because they were helping take care of me. And now we have Narcan for any time we go out with our medical bag. Like if we see anyone or know anyone that like needs it, have it on hand. And I don't think that was as common as a practice in the past. Like I, I had known people that had undergone procedures and they just got their painkillers and that was it. So now I think more medical practices are aware of the problem and trying to do some harm reduction aspects. And I think that more people need to be informed of that. And of course, not only harm reduction for the event of like an overdose or something, but also people are still going to use and abuse medications. So if they are to, I think it's important for drug users to also inform themselves on safe practices like not sharing needles or having equipment like Narcan or having a person that knows that you have taken something so they can relay to medical administrators. Yes. And while we are not medical professionals, some hints and tips uh, I can give for people who are using opioids is if you do not have Narcan on hand, which if you're using opiates, you should attempt to have Narcan on hand. Most pharmacists will give it to you for free. Yes. You do uh, not need usually check your local state laws and your everything with that but most of the time you do not need a prescription in order to purchase it however it will be behind the counter in the event that you cannot have narcan around such as you are attempting to hide certain aspects of uh, your use for whatever reason and someone in your circle od is taking them to the hospital will not get you arrested. So please take the person who's ODing to the hospital. Medical professionals do not care about your use, and they're only trying to save your life. Exactly. And remember, if you're worried about the bill because of your financial situation, you can always make more money in the future if you're still alive. And I think that bears pretty big importance absolutely also if you are utilizing it and you're trying to be preemptive about your use try to set aside a small amount to test it with certain reagents uh, that you can purchase legally online to see if your supply is mixed in with a substance that you're not expecting like fentanyl like fentanyl in which case you think you're taking a certain amount of the drug, but you're actually taking a lot more. So it's very important to try to preempt that and not have to take someone to the hospital for an OD. Those are just a few quick tips. It's always good to make sure 
that you're more informed and to follow the advice of a medical professional. Absolutely. You said you've been affected personally by the opioid epidemic. Do you uh, want to expand on that? Or Oh, yeah. It's, it's not super direct, but we did have a family friend whose daughter was in a car accident, prescribed Oxycontin, and fell into addiction and had brain trauma after trying to quit cold turkey, essentially. Um, I don't really think it's my place to tell the full story. Uh, this person actually went on a podcast. So if you want to learn more about addiction and how it affects the brain, you can listen to her story on the Brain Mastery podcast, which we'll have linked in the doobly-doo as well. And you also have, I think, more direct uh, yes. effect. I actually had a grandfather who worked as a pharmaceutical rep, interestingly enough, and lived a pretty active lifestyle. And unfortunately, during that active lifestyle, developed a type of repetitive strain injury. He was like a marathon runner, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah like an, like almost like an ultra marathon runner. And, uh, the pain, uh, the pain became to a point of where it was unbearable. And, uh, he was given a good amount of these really strong kind of end of life type treatments, eventually kind of leading him to perhaps use more than he should have. And it's hard to tell. It's hard to know because he didn't actually vocalize as much about it, but it, we believe that it really led to his deintegration as a person, I could say. He became not the grandfather I once knew. Mm-hmm. But he at least lived a long, great life before that. So, Well, did you want to discuss any other um, aspects of the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma? Yeah, um, I think, actually, we were watching the House of Usher... And we were going to make the October episode actually about the House of Usher and then kind of tying it together with the Sackler family and a really new way to approach the podcast. But as we were trying to do that, you couldn't really fit the pieces together because it's close, but not There's a lot going on with it. I mean, there are some like direct parallels, of course, but mostly like it's... I think the big hype with House of Usher is like the reformatting of Edgar Allan Poe stories. Yes, absolutely. Um, but to be fair, there are some direct parallels. I think we mentioned earlier that Richard Sackler, I think, is where Roderick Usher is modeled off of, especially in like coming up in a pharmaceutical company and marketing and selling a, quote, non-addictive drug. Drake comes in a little, little glass, glass vial. Little glass vial? Uh, I think also the business model of lying about addictive medications and overprescribing them was a, a huge inspiration for House of Usher too, because that's essentially how the Ushers came into power. And uh, conspiracy, conspiracy corner? corner? It's a conspiracy. That's what it is. A conspiracy. I think, like Roderick and Madeline Usher, the Sacklers made a deal with the devil. And that's why they're still rich and have avoided jail time. So it'll be interesting to see what their comeuppance is. However, that show was a fun show, but don't read. It's fictional, so. Yeah. It's fun. Have fun with it. You know what I mean? But them, the Sacklers, yeah, probably a deal with the devil of some sort. 
maybe it won't come to haunt them directly, but maybe their bloodline mm. or maybe just our nation. Also, some fun shows about this kind of circumstance is it's kind of finally been made into uh, a few miniseries, such as the 2021 Hulu miniseries Dope Sick and the 2023 series Painkiller. I actually recommend Dope Sick. I think it's a better depiction and just a little bit more entertaining. So if you want to get more into the nitty gritty on the Sacklers, you can go ahead and watch those or uh, the documentary Crime of the Century. It kind of covers a like, it's kind of feels like a almost spotlight in a way, but with the opioid epidemic instead. Yeah, exactly. Like it was a while ago, still ongoing mm-hmm. kind of weirdness, but like it's reached such a cultural zeitgeist that it's gotten to the level of like going past like music or references and whatnot and gone to like straight media, like yeah. normal consumption media. Well, do you want to do an overview of the villain's arc and then get into alignment and tactics? Sounds like a plan. So it's kind of interesting and weird that going over a villain's arc, because it's really kind of a multitude yeah. of things. So I would say, like, the villain here is really the mishandling of opiates originating from the Sackler family. Yes. And spurred on by their company, Purdue Pharma. So I feel like as a villain, Sacklers and Purdue go hand in hand. Like, they are one and the same, essentially. Mm-hmm. They started being mentored, of course, in the medical field. Uh, the three sons pioneering new techniques, starting things off well, but then learning you can make profit from pain. Right. There was an opportunity with the threshold and trauma that the cost of human capital created during the Cold War yeah, and industrialization. Humans were being forced to work more, got more accidents, were in more pain. And as the United States became the predominant economic powerhouse of the world, temptations and motivations of money were obvious incentives. And it just became about the money all the way down. Exactly. The revolution in death, of course, was Arthur, the figurehead's death. Uh, that caused the stock reallocation that formed Purdue Pharma, leading to their rebirth and transformation of developing not only MS cotton, but also Oxycontin. The pursuits of Purdue Pharma would eventually then lead to the event horizon of almost a third opium war within the United States. Um, moving on to such a level that nation-state actors are getting involved instead of just companies yeah yeah it's gotten to the point where it's affecting society on a multitude of levels and unfortunately for this slash these villains there isn't much of an atonement or resolution you've heard ad nauseum lawsuit after lawsuit gets paid out over and over their atonement sort of is filing for bankruptcy and dissolving the company, but that's unfortunately still in limbo. So there hasn't really been a resolution for the Sacklers in Purdue, in my eyes, until they're held accountable in some way, like you suggested, maybe seizing their assets or something. Right. Unfortunately, we already have a legacy that hasn't 
been fully realized even yet. Mm-hmm. However, uh, part of it's already been set in stone, such as to this day, the opioid epidemic having cost hundreds of thousands of lives, upwards of 600 at least, if not into the millions in the United States alone, really impacting not only what could have been invented, what could have been made, the stories that could have been told, the family members that could have been there, um, all of that, the legacy is erasure of people. And I think you could also argue a feeling by the overprescription of medication and people not feeling pain might lead to a lot of the feelings of isolation. And you could say even more pain for the family members affected. I think in terms of archetype for the Sacklers in Purdue, they are definitely corrupted because they had initially started with the pursuit of improving the medical system. I mean, they got rid of lobotomies. They started strong and then immediately were consumed by greed, falling from grace, and coming into power when they really shouldn't have been, manipulating so many doctors, families, and lives. They could have done something really profound in a positive way, but they corrupted the medical system, one could argue. Yeah, I think there's also a pretty good argument that they could be a anti-villain. Maybe at the start? Yeah, because at the start, they helped get rid of lobotomies, they helped end uh, blood segregation, and they did, maybe one of them, maybe the uh, Richard's father. Raymond. uh, Raymond. uh, Maybe he was like, hey, I'm helping people not have as much pain. Pain sucks. You know, mm-hmm. back when it was first being formulated. Yeah, they may have had a decent pursuit in terms of the medication part, but and it then, just spiraled. Yes. And instead of, like, an anti-hero, it would be an anti-villain of a villain who sometimes makes good actions, but in the end really has evil motives. And we can kind of see that really develop when Richard takes over the company. And I think, rightfully so, many people see the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma as the personification of evil. I think it's a little extreme, but I can see it. I mean, they're known as one of the most evil families in America because of all of the lives lost. Like, their motive was to profit, and just the sole pursuit of that causing evil rather than actually healing people from their pain. Like, that. that's just textbook. It's really interesting because... You mentioned earlier, like, kind of a deal with the devil. And I was listening to uh, another podcast. I can't recall this time which one it was. Um, but the YouTuber Windagoon was on it. And uh, such a great YouTuber. If you haven't checked out Windagoon, go check out his channel. It's super awesome. Anyway, he's a Christian guy who covers really dark stuff. Uh, very cool guy. He explained in uh, this podcast that... What he really thinks that, like, deals with the devil is sometimes maybe just a lot more simple than we think. And it would be, like, going after just profit. Having the mindset of, I want to be rich. I'm going to go pursue that because, like, for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the pursuit of power or whatnot or earthly pleasures. 
And in that pursuit, the negative effects will start to follow. And that's like in itself, that just the that's the devil is, um, by aiming towards that goal, the negative effects and the repercussions, the slap in the face comes with it. Mm. And it's a lot more mundane Almost like than hand a lot. In hand. Yeah. It's a lot more of a mundane action that leads to such tragedy, which I thought was a, a yeah. pretty great interpretation. Yeah. I think you could definitely see that with Purdue and the Sacklers. Absolutely. I, they were clearly neutral evil, weren't they? I I would think so. I think earlier I was contemplating perhaps they were lawful evil, but they really skirted around the law in terms of their lawsuits. They had good lawyers and they paid their way out of it. So I think because of their interest in their profit, that would make them like a, a classic neutral evil archetype. Mm-hmm. They were truly pragmatist, seeking what they wanted at the cost of everything to basically society. They were not really bound by law and honor because obviously they colluded. Mm -hmm. They're not super honorable because they didn't give a (laughs) shit. They blamed it on like the degenerates and whatnot. Like, you know, like those emails are wild. They aren't really looking to solve people's pain. They're really just only looking for their own benefit. Wait, just based on what you're saying, they could be classified as chaotic evil then. Doing whatever they want to, especially if it hurts other people without regard for the rules, because they consider it's practical. If you think they, if they're considering, oh, yeah, we can manipulate people for money, that's practical. They didn't regard the side effects for people, so that could be chaotic evil i would say it could be chaotic but i don't think that like when i think of chaotic evil i kind of imagine like a joker kind of character i just want to watch the world burn yeah but that's like cartoons and well not cartoons but you know but it's in like cartoons like the personification of an idea to a ridiculous um standard at some points like in some cartoons yes but what i mean i'm more meaning is like if you think about the effects of the opioid epidemic that was sheer chaos unleashed on countless people. I, I think yeah. the actions of the Sacklers may have started like neutral evil, but I think it caused more chaos. And like, I think their lack of regard for the people affected is what make, would make them chaotic evil. See, I think because they benefited and because they became a $13 billion family that they it was more for selfish reasons and more pragmatic. Whereas something like chaotic as like messing up an entire society with uh, certain drugs would be more of like, I'm going to get into this so I can cleanse the degenerates out there. Like that, or I guess from your conspiracy corner earlier, if China wanted revenge for the uh, opium wars, that would be more chaotic evil. That would absolutely be chaotic evil. I think that's, like, it, if China's... Well, actually, that, that that might be neutral evil as well. Or mm. it could be a mix of both. I'd say more leaning heavily towards chaotic evil. Um, whereas, like, I still think the Sacklers are closer to neutral evil. Because so I think... Maybe- Maybe we can settle on neutral evil with a lot of chaos chaos as an aftermath, but maybe not the initial intention. Yes. I would say maybe, how about this? The opioid epidemic as a villain is chaotic evil, and the Sacklers are neutral evil. I think we could agree on that. So, 
What made you villainous this month? <sighs> I'm sad to report that I haven't been that villainous this month. I've only done minor villainy, such as subjecting all of my subjects, I mean friends, to a reality-bending experience of D&D. And maybe, just maybe, it'll turn into a second podcast. And then that podcast will turn into a third podcast. And then I'll have a set of podcasts and a podcast empire. Okay, 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 okay. I can't reveal all of my plans now, but trust Hide me. Hide the World Domination Committee blueprint. The plan's getting there. The plan's getting there. How about you? What made you villainous this month? Well, considering that we released an episode at the very beginning of, of October, and now it's like the end of November, I'll, I'll count my October crime as this month's crime. And in October, I did Crime Spree, which is a tradition, a, an annual tradition I have before Halloween to go out and do petty crimes around the town, like putting googly eyes on stop signs and writing tiny graffiti in church bathrooms. I think the best one, though, one of my friends had stickers of anime eyes and put it over the face of a pope inside the church. So that that wasn't me. I wasn't as smooth of a criminal as they were, but crime spree. So if you would like to do some ecclesiastic crimes, <laughs> then you should join the World Domination Committee and follow us on whatever interface that you listen to podcasts on and leave us a review. Infiltrate the Wired with us at worlddomination.ca. Send us some villainous correspondence to committee at worlddomination.ca. Can confirm the email is back up and running. We're getting spam now. Woo-woo! You can now stalk us on Instagram at worlddominationcommittee since we never touch Twitter anymore. X? Twitter? Nah. We're Twitter's X now. True. See what shenanigans I'm up to at trend.tech. T-R-Y-N-N. Dot T-E-C-H. And you can proliferate the gay agenda by reading what we do in the closet on Top Box. Well, that's all, fuckers! This podcast was brought to you by Bad Baby Productions. <laughs>